Sunday Sermons from Trinity UMC in Lincoln, a podcast to help on the faith journey. Now on to this week's message from Pastor Jeff Slater. This is a single drop of water. Nothing fancy. I got it out of the tap right before the service. But in it is 1.5 sextillion molecules. <laughs> I had to write it out. That's a one and a five with nine zeros past it. No, no, no. 20 zeros. What am I thinking? That is a one and a, one and a five with 20 zeros after. That's how many molecules are in this drop of water. Undoubtedly, there are some minerals in there too and other things like that. This drop of water has the capability of bringing life to my body if I drink it. In fact, I can't live without it, or at least others like it. It has the potential to foster other life too. This drop of water could power a plant's photosynthesis and provide us oxygen to breathe. It could evaporate, become part of our atmosphere, and replenish the earth. If needed, this drop of water could even conduct electricity. We could go on, couldn't we? But this drop of water is a miracle. It's a thing of beauty and even glory and a gift of God. And I think this one's going to give life to my body. You know, we're reading the Gospel of Matthew right now uh, from Christmas to Easter, and I only wish there were enough Sundays in the season to read all of it, uh, but that's for us to do on our own at home. Today, we jump forward to Matthew 17, and we read, uh, we, we read the story, that ha- a story that happened right before Jesus began the long journey to the cross. You know, this week is the start of Lent. Uh, we'll have Ash Wednesday. Uh, we'll have the, the service this Wednesday at 6.30 with the imposition of ashes and all of that. And, uh, um, uh, and through it, we'll follow Jesus as he uh, goes, uh, continues to go about his ministry, but now with a destination in mind, headed towards the cross in Jerusalem. Or as, what is it? I think it's Luke's gospel says, he sets his face to Jerusalem. But before that happened, there's a tradition in the church of always reading the story of the transfiguration. First of all, it's just good to have an excuse to read it once a year. You know, one of these uh, most amazing, uh, magnificent uh, stories of of Jesus. And I'll read it for you again uh, in a moment too. But it also gives us something to hang on to when the days get tough, because we know the journey of Lent does get tough. When we rededicate ourselves to our faith, when we walk with Jesus to the cross, things are not always easy. And this story gives us something to hang on to. So, Larry read it for us earlier, but you know me, I always like to read things more than once. So listen to it again. Six days later, after the story before it, of course, Jesus took Peter, James and John, his brother, and brought them to the top of a very high mountain. He was transformed in front of them. His face shone like the sun. 
Now, if you know your Bible really well, you may know that when Moses came down from the mountain after speaking with God, they, uh, the people made him put a veil over his face because his face was shining too brightly. <laughs> and here it is again with Jesus. Jesus' face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as light. You do know they didn't have Clorox in the first century, right? <laughs> now, I say that in a funny way, but to see clothes that were white, <laughs> that like it makes an impact, right? This is something truly special is going on here. And as if that wasn't enough, Moses and Elijah appeared to them talking with Jesus. Peter reacted to all of this by saying, Lord, it's good that we're here. If you want, I'll make three shrines, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And while Peter was speaking, look, Matthew writes, a bright cloud overshadowed them. A voice from the clouds said, this is my son whom I dearly love. I am very pleased with him. Listen to him. And hearing this, the disciples, if I may add a word to Matthew here, stopped their rambling. <laughs> stopped their, stopped their, their, their putzing around and dumbfounded ideas and fell on their faces, filled with with awe. Now, I am totally projecting here, I will admit, but I've always wondered if older, wiser Peter looked back, would have looked back at that moment and said that it happened because he needed a handicap. And I mean handicap like in the golf sense here. You know what I mean by a golf ha handicap? You have uh, uh, golfers who are unevenly matched in their skill level. And so the one who's a, a weaker player gets a couple extra points, right? So that it becomes competitive because they need a little extra help. Uh, I'm not a golfer, but I imagine if I, w if I was, I'd have a high handicap, right? Because I'd need the extra boost to be able to be competitive. Well, I wonder if Peter looked back and said that, that Jesus took him along on this journey because he needed the handicap. <laughs> you know, Peter struggled so much and, on, and, and openly so. Uh, we see him again and again in the gospel stories uh, trying to follow Jesus and failing and stumbling along the way, oftentimes falling flat on his face. And I know that Jesus knew what was in store for Peter and how hard the coming journey was going to be for him, how important and how good, but also how difficult it was gonna be. And I wonder if Jesus wanted to give him something to hold on to and remember when he doubted so that when things got truly hard, he could think back to that moment. You know, so later on, after Jesus' death and resurrection, when Peter found himself trying to hold together those early Christians and became their leader, you know, th those early Christians who would argue about things that only seem important, you know, those ones uh, the, who, who he would have to try to calm down their arguments all while trying to proclaim God's goodness to a world that wouldn't, wouldn't listen? <laughs> You know, okay, yeah, I am projecting here, aren't I? <laughs> but when those moments came, he would be able to say, remember the mountain, remember the mountain. You know, he'd be able to go into his room and close the door and picture Jesus' face glowing and the bright white clothes and remember what it was all about. It was a handicap, I think. But I think oftentimes we also go wrong with the story of the transfiguration. As good as it is for us to, for us to hold on to uh, also, I think we also go wrong when we start to think that those kinds of moments only happen on the mountaintop. 
you know? When we start to think that it only happens to Jesus' inner circle, he only took three along with him, right? And we start to think, oh, well, that's only for the special ones. You know, that's, that's not for me. That's where we start to go wrong. When we start to think that that kind of presence of God only happens in special places or only happens once in a millennium, because I don't think that's the case at all. You see, Jesus on the way down from the mountain was still the same Jesus whose face had glowed just a few minutes before. It was the same Jesus who taught them to love God more holy. It's the same Jesus who ate ordinary meals with them. The same Jesus who walked along the road and stubbed his toe occasionally like we all do. It's the same Jesus who would hang dying on the cross not too long later. It's the same Jesus who let them feel his wounds after he had risen. And then the same Jesus who sat around the fire with them on the beach putting the fish on for breakfast. <laughs> you know, part of me wishes that paper and ink hadn't been so expensive in Bible times because, be, because paper and ink were so expensive, nobody ever wrote down the ordinary. All they ever wrote down were the special, the special things. And I'm so glad they did because that's how we have these stories. But wouldn't it have been amazing if they'd written down the ordinary stuff like teenage Jesus working in his dad's carpenter shop? just uh, putting out another chair <laughs> you know part of me would like to hear that or maybe I'm sure there was a time that Jesus was walking along the trail snacking on a piece of grain why not of course that's Jesus or Jesus at the end of a long day of walking along the trail giving a big old yawn and making his disciples yawn with him <laughs> or maybe just shooting the breeze saying nothing profound at all all of these things, even the mundane ones, I kind of wonder, maybe even especially the mundane ones, are the same Jesus whose face glowed on the mountain along with Elijah and Moses on the mountaintop. And sometimes I fear this story unintentionally trains us to think that we have to go to the mountains and that we have to take a vacation to Colorado in order to see amazing things. When the truth is, The simplest of things right in front of us, like this single drop of water, are capable of life, of glory, of transformation. You know, I've been on a kick learning about Howard Thurman lately. Howard Thurman was one of the early uh, figures in the civil rights movement. Uh, we have a picture of him there. Uh, he was, uh, he was uh, uh, in some ways, a spiritual mentor to Martin Luther King Jr., uh, a kind of a spiritual guide to him. And, and uh, Martin Luther King was said to have always carried around one of Thurman's books with him in his briefcase wherever he went. Uh, he was also dean of the chapel at Boston University where I did my doctorate. And uh, there were times that I would go into, uh, go into the chapel. He was the dean of the chapel, right? There were times I would go into his old chapel and I would just sit in the silence in the presence of that space. Well, when I mentioned him before, uh, it was just a brief little mention on Martin Luther King Jr. Day weekend. And I think what I said that day was that Thurman was known to talk to trees. <laughs> and while I didn't understand that, I considered it a life goal. <laughs> to figure out what Thurman saw in the tree that I don't yet. <laughs> but 
as I think about what we're talking about today, as I think of this story of transfiguration, as I think of the drop of water, I have to wonder if maybe that's part of it. You know, Thurman saw God in everything. As you read his writings, as you hear the stories others wrote about him, he literally saw God in everything. He had a gift for being open to the very real experience of God in the here and now, in every moment, wherever he went, he was open to it, not just once or twice in a lifetime, but in all the little things as well. Now, I can't put words in his mouth, and he never wrote about the whole tree thing, <laughs> but I have to wonder if maybe he was just so open to God in the tree that it just made sense to say hello. <laughs> but do you know what else he believed? He also believed, in fact, even more so, that that holy presence of God isn't just in the tree. It's in each one of us. He was solidly Christian in his own faith. In fact, he was even criticized uh, by, uh, by Gandhi and some of Gandhi's followers once uh, for hanging too tightly to his Christianity. <laughs> but he felt that his Christianity was never complete unless it also included what God had taught to the Muslims and the Hindus and everyone else. Very liberal for his time, and he got some pushback for that too, but of course it didn't faze him. One of my favorite quotes of Howard Thurman is this. We'll put it on the screen. Don't ask what the world needs. Ask yourself what makes you come alive and go do that, because what the world needs is people who have come alive. Can I read it again to make sure we get it? Don't ask yourself what the world needs. Ask yourself what makes you come alive and go do that. Because what the world needs is people who have come alive. Because you see, Thurman realized that each one of us has that spark of the divine in us. He knew that God had made each one of us the way that God made us so that we could be that person because that's what the world needs because that spark of the divine is in each of us. And it's only when we lean into it, it's only when we awaken to it, it's only when we have the eyes to see it that we allow that divine spark in each of us, not just in the tree, in us, to transform us, not entirely differently, than Jesus on the mountain. The story of the transfiguration, I think, is a golf-style handicap for all of us because we're not Jesus. You know, we're not yet at Jesus' level of closeness to God, at his level of consciousness, of being able to see God everywhere yet. And when we finally learn to see the transfiguration in all things, when we finally learn to start seeing it as Jesus teaches us on that mountain, as he gives us in an example that is so easy and obvious to see, well, that's when we begin to see that even the smallest of things, even the single drop of water that gives life to the divine spark within us is a miracle. Now, I'm so tempted to end there. But I don't think it would be right to stop without setting you up for success as we head into Lent this Wednesday. And so I ask the question, how do we do it? 
How do we do it? How do we learn to see God in every little thing? How do we learn to have eyes to see the glory that is all around us? And the wisdom of the ages in Lent tells us that one of the best ways is to make space for it. It's not that we need to go and do something particular, though maybe. It's more so that we need to get rid of the things in our lives that are crowding it out. You know, I've mentioned lots of times, uh, unless you're new here, I'm sure you've heard me talk about cooking before. I enjoy doing it. But you want to know the thing that uh, always trips me up when I'm cooking? I overcrowd the pan. I almost always overcrowd the pan. Now, do you know what I mean? You know, if, if you put, if you, if you're put, I don't know, sauteing mushrooms, let's just say. If you're sauteing mushrooms in a pan and you put too many of them in the pan... There's no room for them to breathe, right? There's no room for the steam to escape. And so what happens is you end up with mushrooms that are kind of soggy and kind of lifeless because you tried to cook too many of them all at once. And I'm always in a hurry, right? I want to, I want to get them all done in one go and I really like mushrooms, so I want a lot of them. And so I overcrowd the pan and they end up soggy and lifeless. But the truth is, when you put less in, when there's more space between the bits of food in the pan, when you don't overcrowd it, all of a sudden there's room for the magic that is cooking to happen, right? And that is what Lent is about because all of us have a tendency to overcrowd our lives. Now, now, now I'm preaching as they say, right? All of us have a tendency to, th to stuff ourselves so full of influences, of TV, of podcasts, uh, of things we want to do, things we want to accomplish. Do I even need to talk about our calendars? Fellow parents, anybody with me? We have so much stuff in our lives that there's no room to even notice the tree, let alone say hello to it. <laughs> That's what Lent is about. It's about making space so that the things that are most worth it have room to breathe and have room to grow. Transfiguration is everywhere. This Lent, may your life be a little less crowded. May there be a little less in your way keeping you from seeing it. And may it be you who is transfigured, knowing the miracle that God has placed in you. Amen. Would you pray with me? Oh God, Thank you for the miracle of the holy. Thank you for the moment on the Mount of Transfiguration when Peter, James, and John saw what Jesus sees. <laughs> when they saw what Jesus sees in them. When they saw what Jesus sees in us. Oh God, help us to follow the advice of the voice on the mountain, the, the capital V, your voice, God. Help us to listen to him, to Jesus. Help us to make room in our life and help us to know deeply that indeed everything is holy. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen. 
Thanks for joining us for this week's Sunday Sermon. For more information on growth groups or how to more fully embrace the life of faith, visit us at www.trinitylincoln.org.